The Mississippi air was rent by a deep-throated roar. The ground shook and the trees quaked. A colossal machine had rumbled to life and now was hemorrhaging smoke and flame in billowing plumes from an imposing concrete stand. Werner von Braun's Saturn V rocket was finally allowed to let its engines bellow, demonstrating the awesome power of NASA's largest rocket to date. The curtain of exhaust that rippled out from the test stand produced more thrust than any rocket ever launched before. Years of effort were finally bearing fruit. There were portents in that growling engine. Welcome to episode 37 of Frontier of Infinity, Path to Apollo. In the last episode, we discussed what the Soviets did in the wake of Sergei Kurlyov's death. Vasily Mishin rose to take the title of chief designer, and thus inherited the Herculean workload Kurlyov had left behind. Between fighting with the Soviet bureaucracy for funding and attempting to hone the N-1 Soyuz vehicle designs while juggling a number of other space projects as well, the Soviets did not launch a single crewed mission in 1966. The only Soviet victories in space came from a handful of Luna missions which were fired off by the Lavochkin Design Bureau. Today, we're shifting gears and refocusing on the United States to take a look at the long road the Apollo program has followed since its early days, quickly reviewing some of the material we've already covered in past episodes before moving on to those advancements made in parallel with the flights of the Gemini program. Work on Apollo has been ongoing since the summer of 1960, when it was originally planned to be a direct follow-up to Mercury. Of course, Gemini would be conceived and implemented in between those projects. But as Gemini was expanding NASA's abilities to operate in space, work on Apollo was unabated. There was much to do, and we'll explore much of what was accomplished in today's episode. By 1965, Project Apollo had already seen massive progress. The launch vehicle had been in development for years and was already in testing unfettered by the lack of funding which plagued the Soviet moon rocket. Werner von Braun had been focusing the majority of his energies on developing the Saturn rocket, the first of which, a Saturn I designated Saturn SA-1, was launched from a specially built pad on October 27, 1961, and marked a massive leap forward for American rocket design. It stood three times taller than its predecessor, the Jupiter, and consumed six times as much fuel, producing a total thrust output which dwarfed the Jupiter's tenfold. The first stage was so large it had to be carried to the launch pad by ship, as it was too massive to be transported over land. The first launch was only a test of the first stage, however, the second and payload stages were dummies, intended to limit the damage done in the event of a catastrophic failure. They were loaded with water, though, to simulate the weight of a fully loaded rocket and payload. The chances of a catastrophic failure were quite high, 
Such was the nature of any new vehicles made in flight, and with a vastly more complicated design than any rocket before, the design team gave it a highly optimistic 30% prognosis for a successful flight. But against the odds, Saturn SA-1 flew flawlessly and set a confident tone for the coming missions. As the launch vehicle progressed, the mission designers were also working on the mission plan, which would be used to reach the moon. One of the first great hurdles on that front was the so-called mode decision, which we've covered rather extensively in previous episodes. The short version is that there was a long and sometimes heated debate among the NASA planners regarding how the mission to land on the moon should be structured. Should the lunar lander fly straight to the moon without entering Earth orbit, an option known as direct ascent? Should the lander be launched as separate components before being assembled in Earth orbit, refueled, and sent to the moon, an option known as Earth orbit rendezvous? Or should the lander come in two pieces, a landing module and a command module which would stay in orbit and be launched together by one rocket? This third option, known as the Lunar Orbit Rendezvous, would require the lander, or part of it at least, to lift off of the moon's surface and dock with the orbiting command module while circling the moon. It offered huge advantages in weight and fuel consumption, but required a very difficult and dangerous docking maneuver to play out hundreds of thousands of miles from mission control. In the end, the Lunar Orbit Rendezvous won out, and thus designs for the lander could begin to be realized. The quick version of the mission plan went as such. A single Saturn V rocket would launch both the lunar lander and the command service module together. Once in Earth orbit, they would dock, and then the engine on the CSM would push them both to the moon. The lander would separate once in lunar orbit and land on the surface with its own rocket motors, carrying two astronauts along with it. A third astronaut would stay in the CSM overhead. Once surface activities were completed, the astronauts would return to the lander and fire a different rocket motor, which would propel just the crewed section of the lander back into lunar orbit. The lander's ascent stage and the CSM would dock, and then the CSM would fly home, with all the astronauts on board. April of 1962 brought the next test of the Saturn Apollo launch vehicle. It was also a complete success, but on this flight, the rocket was intentionally detonated at an altitude of 65.5 miles, or approximately 105.4 kilometers, to release a payload of water which was stored in its dummy upper stages. This water was then tracked as it continued to ascend, forming an artificial cloud for an experiment dubbed Project High Water. This too was a success. Saturn SA-3 was likewise a success, testing out the first stage as well as the staging system for separating the first stage from the upper ones after it burned out. The Project High Water experiment was repeated, and all went well. Meanwhile, North American Aviation was hard at work on the command service module, which would house the crew during their flight back to the Earth, as well as carry all of the necessary supplies they need to survive the journey. This spacecraft was formed of two parts, a cylindrical main body with a single rocket engine at the back, and then a conical command module at the front, which the astronauts would use to re-enter the atmosphere and splash down in the ocean. These two pieces would be joined as one during the flight, but for re-entry, the command module would separate, and only it, with the three astronauts on board, would return to the Earth. 
boilerplate models for the command module, essentially dummy versions designed to replicate the flight characteristics of the spacecraft without any of the internal functionality, were launched atop stubby little rockets called Little Joes at the White Sands Proving Ground in New Mexico to test the spacecraft's behavior in flight. There were five of these launches, and they all went well save for one. But the failed mission still revealed valuable information about the spacecraft, and thus was still considered a success. Work on the lunar lander was also underway. Grumman Aircraft Engineering won the contract to design the spacecraft that would actually land on the surface of the moon, a vehicle they called the Lunar Excursion Module, or LEM. This would be the first major NASA contract the company had taken on, and thus there was pressure to prove that they were up to the challenge. The design which emerged as a result of the contract was a spidery machine which would set down onto the lunar surface on four legs. A geometric base would support the legs, as well as a propulsion system for landing, and then an angular upper portion festooned with dishes and antennae would house the astronauts. Of course, the astronauts would need to be able to train to operate the lander, just like every other spacecraft. But training to pilot the lunar lander would be a different beast to training for the Mercury or the Gemini capsule. As the lunar lander would need to set down on the moon's surface under conditions of lunar gravity, which is about one-sixth the gravity of the Earth, NASA and their contractors would need to find a way to simulate that one-sixth gravity on the Earth's surface. There were three main proposals for how to do this. First, a stationary simulator could be built, which wouldn't actually simulate lunar gravity, but would still allow the astronauts to familiarize themselves with the controls. Secondly, a large A-frame structure could be built with a crane assembly from which a simulated lander would dangle, which would take five-sixths of the lander's weight. But the proposal which ended up being adopted was a monstrosity nicknamed by the astronauts as the Flying Bedframe. It was a minimalistic vehicle meant to approach the design and feel of the lunar lander, which was equipped with a downward-facing jet engine, which would provide enough thrust to support five-sixths of the machine's weight, and thus simulate lunar gravity so that landings could be practiced. The machine was officially known as the LLRV, the Lunar Landing Research Vehicle. It was a dangerous one to operate. Bell Aerosystems was handed the contract to construct them, and of the five they produced, three of them crashed. However, Deke Slayton, as well as several other astronauts, including Neil Armstrong, would later praise the machine overall, stating that without them, it would have been nearly impossible to accurately simulate landing on the moon. The end of 1962 saw Apollo coming together quite nicely. The mode decision was settled, the contracts for the vehicles had been awarded, and testing was underway for the launch vehicle. 1963 would see further development and testing, pushing the program nearer to flight readiness. One of the major tasks for 1963 was to compose the Apollo Systems Specification Book, which would contain all of the objectives, technical procedures, and sub-objectives of the program, as well as information about how each of the objectives were to be achieved. This work was enormous and iterative, requiring some pieces to be filled in at a later date, or revised later on, as the systems for the mission progressed. One of the major advantages to going through this process was that it required the mission planners to evaluate every single facet of the mission. When should the launch take place? During the day, so that recovery efforts for an aborted launch could be carried out more effectively. 
What would happen if one or more astronauts became indisposed during the mission? Could the command module and lunar lander be operated by just one pilot to mission completion? This became a requirement for both North American Aviation and Grumman, who were building those two elements of the spacecraft. The communication system used to stay in touch with spacecraft in orbit also had to be altered to accommodate constant communication with a vehicle on or around the moon. Larger antennae and dishes had to be erected in Spain, Australia, and California so that transmissions from the moon could be collected and then beamed to Houston through a specialized relay network. All the while, the Saturn family of rockets continued to march forth. Saturn Apollo 4 launched on March 28, 1963, again with only the first stage active. This time, though, ground control intentionally shut down one of the engines to simulate a failure and see if the rocket would correctly compensate by diverting fuel to the other engines and carrying out a longer burn. It did so beautifully, and the flight was a success. Additional tests were carried out with the Little Joes alongside a pair of pad abort tests, which would simulate a situation where the mission had to be scrubbed while the rocket was still sitting on the pad. This tested the new crew escape tower, which worked similarly to the old escape tower from the Mercury era. Solid rockets mounted on a spire above the crew module would fire in the event of an emergency to carry the crew capsule away from the rocket before a parachute would bring it gently down to Earth. By 1964, the engineers at Grumman were beginning to grow angry with the NASA mission planners, as constant tweaks and changes made to the mission plan made it very difficult for them to turn out a final design for the lander. This resulted in the creation of the Reference Mission, a hypothetical moon landing for which the entire process was planned out second by second. This allowed NASA and Grumman to both work from a shared template mission, which could be updated as needed to accommodate for necessary alterations to the mission plan. It took four whole months to put together, and filled three sizable volumes when fully assembled. It was a valuable tool for the contractors to use, as it gave them a full picture of what the systems they were designing would need to do. By April of 1964, North American Aviation had created a full mock-up of the command service module, the part of the moon craft which would stay in orbit while the lander descended. For the first time, astronauts were allowed to see the whole thing, and actually climb inside to explore and critique. One of the issues which was immediately evident was how close together the seats were, providing hardly any room to move. These notes were taken by North American, modifications were made, and the problem was ameliorated by September when a second mock-up review was held. Testing also continued, with the so-called Block 2 Saturn beginning to fly. The Saturn tests done up to this date had all been Block 1 Saturns, with just an active first stage and dummy upper stages. The Block 2 would have an active second stage as well. Saturn Apollo 5, 6, and 7 would fly during 1964, alongside a few other missions. These Saturn Apollo flights placed boilerplate Apollos into orbit, while two additional missions, dubbed Fire 1 and Fire 2, used Atlas rockets to launch a miniaturized Apollo capsule on a suborbital parabolic path to collect thermodynamic and flight characteristics data on the heat shield, which would be used for re-entry. The Atlas would carry the fire module to altitude before releasing the mini-Apollo attached to an Antares II solid-fueled rocket engine. 
this engine would fire on the way down, imparting much greater velocity to the tiny Apollo in order to better replicate the intense heat of reentry when a returning Apollo would strike the atmosphere. This often overlooked project was nevertheless a great success, and returned a good amount of valuable data which could be used to better hone the Apollo heat shield. Meanwhile, the LEM was undergoing many changes in its design. The shape of the craft had to be altered several times, to reduce weight, to ensure functionality, and to simplify the design where possible. A spacecraft which was originally going to have six sizable windows ended up with two small ones, but even despite the reduced surface area for the windows, they still provided decent visibility outside, and were angled downward to accommodate a clear view of the landing area. The outer shape of the machine was also altered, leaving behind the originally very round design to become more angular and irregular. The astronauts also got to contribute to this design process. Charles Conrad in particular kept a close eye on the process, bringing his test pilot expertise to bear on the layout of the instrument panels and the locations of all the necessary controls which the astronauts would use to pilot the spacecraft. Atop the Saturn rocket, the LEM would have its legs folded up to reduce its size, and then would be housed underneath a payload fairing. The service module and its connected command module would rest over the top of it, capped off by the crew escape tower, which formed the very top of the rocket. Once in orbit, the payload fairing would jettison, and then the command service module would flip itself around, dock with the LEM resting just behind it, and together, they would burn for lunar orbit. An interesting conflict with the Air Force arose as the lander neared flight readiness. Air Force regulations required that every booster rocket be equipped with a self-destruct mechanism, so that a rocket could be safely exploded in the atmosphere if it went off course, instead of plummeting down onto one of the many population centers surrounding the Cape. As the lander was technically a two-stage booster rocket, with one engine in the bottom stage to control the landing, and one in the ascent stage to bring the crew back up into lunar orbit, they insisted that a self-destruct mechanism be installed. However, this was anathema to the NASA engineers, who were terrified that such a device could malfunction and destroy the lander with astronauts on board at any point during the moon mission. These fears were shared with the Air Force Range Safety Officer, who understood completely and agreed to let that particular regulation slide in this instance. 1963 and 1964 saw the bulk of the design work for the lunar lander and the command service module completed. 1965 would see construction begin in earnest, not merely of mock-ups and boilerplates, but of functioning spacecraft. This progress also ran in parallel with the first five flights of the Gemini program, which helped to clear away many of the roadblocks that still stood in Apollo's way. Rendezvous and docking had never been achieved in orbit, even though that was a vital component for the Apollo plan. Gemini saw NASA pull off both, and even become quite adept at it. But on the ground, there were problems emerging. While Grumman was charging ahead with the lunar lander, North American was falling behind on the production of the booster rockets and command service modules. North American claimed that the delays were due to NASA's stringent requirements and constant changes made to their plans, and they were partially correct in that assertion. But regardless, the delays had to be corrected, and thus, head of the Apollo Program Bureau, Thomas Markley, proclaimed that changes would be made to the flight plans and vehicles only to solve problems, and no longer for sheer product improvement. 
There was also a new spacesuit in development, which had been in the works since 1962. But come 1965, there were three competing bids from three separate companies for NASA to consider. The David Clark Company, which had designed the Gemini suits, Hamilton Standard, and International Latex, who had originally been handed a contract for the suits, but had been dropped on account of poor performance. They had requested that they be allowed to produce their own spacesuit design with their own funds to stay in the competition, and NASA agreed, not expecting much from a company which had already demonstrated it was not up to the challenge. Imagine NASA's shock when International Latex's spacesuit proved to be the best of the three in testing. Latex was awarded a new contract for the spacesuit, while Hamilton Standard would produce the life support backpack, which would keep the astronaut alive on the surface of the moon. Fawn Brown was also hard at work at Marshall Space Flight Center. Micrometeorites, or very small particles moving very quickly in space, were a concern for the NASA planners. How much of a threat could they pose to a crewed spacecraft? Fawn Brown and his team launched three missions with Saturn I rockets, which deployed Pegasus satellites. Designed by Fairchild, the Pegasus was a simple satellite intended to detect micrometeorite impacts and they could be launched from within an Apollo boilerplate model. The launches were all successful and returned promising results. Micrometeorite impacts were not terribly common, and the vast majority of them were entirely tolerable by the Apollo's outer shell. 1966 saw further testing of the Apollo spacecraft. A qualification flight was carried out in February and went overall quite well, despite a number of malfunctions which would need to be addressed. The Saturn V, which would be even more powerful than the Saturn I, was still under development by North American. But once again, there were delays. In an attempt to switch direction, North American hired a former Air Force general named Robert Greer to head up the stage development department. Greer got straight to work and initiated an intensive ground-testing regimen at the NASA test stands in Mississippi firing all five of the Rocketdyne J-2 engines which would power the first stage of the Saturn V simultaneously. Hopefully, he could get North American back on track and deliver the rocket on schedule. Meanwhile, there were fresh concerns rising from Gemini. Dave Scott and Neil Armstrong suffered through a wild ride when their Gemini began to spin after docking with an Agena target vessel. And though they survived, there were concerns that such a thing could happen again. Then Elliot C. and Charles Bassett, two members of the astronaut corps, were killed in a plane crash. To compound these issues, NASA experienced a great deal of issue conducting spacewalks, as it proved difficult and dangerous. But NASA sought to learn from these experiences, and by Gemini 12, they had developed methods for safer and easier EVAs. Additionally, rendezvous and docking had become much more efficient. By the end of 1966, the Apollo program had come a long way. The spacecraft and their booster rockets were nearly ready to fly. But Project Gemini had allowed NASA to build many skills that would be necessary for the moon landing program. This is the penultimate episode of Season 2. Next time, we're going to review everything we covered this season, and then after that, we'll start in on Season 3, where Project Apollo will begin to strive toward the moon in earnest, and the Soviets will likewise attempt to get their N-1 Soyuz flying. The space race is entering its final phase. The moon is the prize. As always, thanks to all of you for listening. 
If you like this show and you want to help me out, please follow the podcast, share it with your friends and family, and leave it a rating if you feel so inclined. It really does help. Our theme music is Crossing the Universe by Esther Garcia. You can listen to the full track and more of her music on Spotify. Until next time, I'm Tom. This is Frontier of Infinity. I'll see you among the stars. Thank you.